You're listening to Radio American Christian Voice in your home. We're not presenting the show. Jesus the Promised Messiah, Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. We have a very special feast day today, so I want to start the show talking a little bit about the feast day, which is today, which is the feast of the conversion of St. Paul, which is also providentially or by design the sixth day of the week for Christian unity, as observed by the Catholic Church. And that sixth day of the week for Christian unity is dedicated to prayer for the conversion of the Jews, since in a broader sense, Judaism and uh, Catholicism are not entirely distinct, so the conversion of the Jews actually falls within the week for Christian unity. So I'm going to start with a, a couple of Catholic prayers for the conversion of the Jews, and then I'm going to go on to the body of the show. So I want to give you a little bit of a heads up and a little bit of a warning, because usually uh, my shows are, are mainly spiritual in nature. And today's show will be a little bit of a deviation from that and will have more of a uh, political bent because I want to talk about the situation in the Middle East and the relationship between, quote, Palestine, close quote, and Israel and the source of the conflict there and try to cast it in the light of uh, spiritual warfare and the, frankly, eschatological dimensions of what's going on. So... Uh, I just want to give you a warning in case somebody is not interested in that topic. You may not, you may not want to listen through the show, which is fine. So anyway, but first let's start with the feast of the conversion of Saint Paul, and so I will read the prayer from the Catholic breviary for today. Um, it's no longer used, uh, but it, it was in the Catholic breviary until. Um, a new version. I don't know if it's the newest version or whether it was the version that came out after Vatican II. But here's this very, very beautiful prayer for the uh, conversion of the Jews from the Catholic breviary for today. O God, who manifests your mercy and compassion towards all peoples, have mercy upon the Jewish race from the very beginning, your chosen people. You selected them alone out of all the nations of the world to be the custodians of your sacred teachings. From them you raised up prophets and patriarchs to announce the coming of the Redeemer. You willed that your only Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, should be a Jew according to the flesh, born of a Jewish maiden in the land of promise. Listen to the prayers we offer you today for the conversion of the Jewish people. Grant that they may come safely to a knowledge and love of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah foretold by their prophets, and that they may walk with us in the way of salvation. Amen. And then finally, a prayer to St. Paul for the conversion of the Jews. O holy Apostle Paul of Tarsus, from your glorious place in heaven, look down upon the race you loved so well. True it is that many of them remain deaf to your ringing words of truth, and that some of them even stirred up persecution against you and your fellow believers. But you were so devoted to your people, 
that you willed to become a castaway for the sake of their conversion. Now that you are glorious in heaven, obtain for your brethren the grace of repentance and conversion, so that they may finally take their rightful place in the great family of the Catholic Church. Amen. So those are the prayers and uh, response to today's kind of double feast day of the conversion of St. Paul and of day six of the week for Christian unity dedicated to the conversion of the Jews. And now I'm going to shift gears to, in some sense, what's going on in the Middle East. First, why am I even talking about this? Well, if you've read my book, Salvation is from the Jews, you know that what excites me the most is to see the unfolding of world history as a manifestation of salvation history, to see the spiritual warfare behind the scenes that's driving things that, as it comes to the surface, like the tip of the iceberg that sticks up out of the ocean, we see as world history. But the forces that are coming together producing that are the spiritual forces around the salvation of mankind. Now, the return of the Jews to Israel after almost 2,000 years of ex exile has um, unmistakable eschatological, that just means having to do with the end times and the second coming, implications, given that the return of the Jews from exile to Israel is very frequently prophesied in the Old Testament, complete with some very specific details, like them coming from the north, which seems to be a reference to the um, emigration of the Jews of Russia, which is directly north from Israel to Israel and so forth. Of course, Protestant uh, preachers tend to talk a lot more about the formation of the state of Israel in the context of biblical prophecy, but that doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. That just really means that our Protestant brethren are more in tune with Old Testament prophecy and, and place a greater attention to it than is often the case in the Catholic Church. So given that the return of the Jews to Israel has this eschatological dimension to it, um, the, it it's clear that the forces opposing it also have a anti-eschatological dimension, in other words, a spiritual dimension. And the current situation, the political situation, let's say, in the area around Israel with the Palestinians, is a manifestation of that spiritual warfare. And there's another dimension to this that I want to open up, which is the spiritual warfare not only takes place physically on the you know physical plane with politics and so forth, but it very much takes place also in the consciousness of the world at large, in the kind of man's, the, the German phrase is zeitgeist, but the, the spirit of the times, the understanding, the view of the world that uh, much of humanity shares at a particular point in time. And my thesis is that the current understanding of the good guys and the bad guys and where justice lies and so forth, with respect to the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis is distorted by that spiritual warfare. Grossly distorted, in fact. Um, so what I'm going to do today, I'm going to give a brief introduction to the situation, and then I am going to play a recording from a radio show discussion between two men that I have profound respect for, both of them, Dr. Michael Brown, who is a Messianic Jewish 
rabbi, Jewish uh, convert to Christianity, unfortunately not Catholicism, and Robert Spencer, who is a um, uh, uh, from Armenian roots, a Catholic, uh, was a Catholic deacon, uh, and is now uh, is a, quite an Islam scholar and is very involved in the conflict or the role of Islam in the force in our society today. So I'll, I'll turn to that recording in a few minutes. Um, but first, let me lay a little bit of groundwork. First of all, Palestine. What's Palestine mean? This may come as a surprise to many people, but there literally was never a country called Palestine in the history of the world. There was never a president or prime minister of a country called Palestine, and there was never a people who were referred to as Palestinians until the late 1960s. Palestine was the name of a geographical region. What happened was when the Romans conquered the Jews, second century after Christ, um, and dispersed the Jews, they wanted to humiliate the Jews and make it clear that their land was taken away from them. So they renamed what had been Israel and Judea, Palestine, after the Philistines, who were the Jews' number one enemy in the Old Testament. So they, they named it after the Philistines, who were no longer around as a tribe, simply as a humiliation to the Jews. It was a, a geographical reference to that region in the Middle East. For much of those centuries, it was referred to as Syria Palestinian, pa Syria Palestinia, because it was a region of Syria. It became part of the Ottoman Empire. Now we're going into the let's say, 17th century, 18th century. It was part of the Ottoman Empire, which uh, was ruled from Turkey and uh, comprised that entire region. Um, the, the Ottoman Empire was conquered in lost World War I, essentially, and the British took control of basically the territory, which had been part of the Ottoman Empire. And they took the region which now compri comprises um, all of Jordan as well as Israel and called it uh, the British Mandate of Palestine and was under British control. The population at the time was about one-third Jewish and two-thirds Arab. Um, let me rephrase that. The population of the part of it that we now think of as Israel was about one-third Jewish and two-thirds Arab. It had been largely unpopulated until the beginning of the 19th century, and then when the Zionist movement began and Jews started moving there in greater numbers, there was always a Jewish presence there continually from the second century, but a much larger number of Jews started moving there um, from Russia and from Europe with the start of Zionism in the, in the late 19th century. As they came, they brought Frankly, they brought money with them, and they started uh, establishing agricultural enterprises and draining the swamps and building farms and building buildings, and that produced a lot of labor. So a lot of um, Arabs from the territory, from Syria, from Egypt, and so forth, migrated as economic migrants into this territory in order to provide a lot of labor and li frankly live alongside the Jews in much better economic circumstances. And that influx of the Arab population 
was great enough to result in this one-third Jewish, two-thirds um, Arab population at the time. Until the 1950s, probably, maybe, maybe that's the 1940s, the term Palestinian, referring to a person, referred to anybody who lived in the territory, whether they were Jewish, whether they gr were Greek Orthodox, or whether they were Arab. It was a reference to the population of the area. It was not an ethnic group. It was never a distinct ethnic group. It was never distinct either ethnically or linguistically or back through the generations from the other Arabs in the territory in what is now um, Syria or Jordan or Egypt. In fact, Yasser Arafat, who was the first leader of the Palestinian people, so forth, uh, so-called, was actually an Egyptian who grew up in Egypt. So the entire nation, uh, the entire notion of an ethnic group of Palestinians is, frankly, its in invention back to the territory itself. No, maybe I don't have time to do that and still play the clip. So let me just say that Okay, so the, uh, the British had control of it. The British uh, divided it up. I'm taking a lot of shortcuts, but they divided up what had been known as the British Mandate of Palestine and gave 83% of it to the Arabs, the entire territory east of the Jordan River, which we now know of as Jordan, and, and took 17% of it and gave it to the Jews as a national homeland. Um, this was ratified by the League of Nations, and it was ratified by the United Nations in 1948 when they set up the Jewish State of Israel in that entire territory to the west of the Jordan River, which was only, as I said, 17% of what had been the British Mandate of Palestine, which actually after World War I had been uh, dedicated to be a national homeland for the Jews in its entirety. But anyway, that changed over time. So um, then basically what happened was the United Nations set up a, the first two-state solution with a Jewish state to the um, east of the Jordan River and a Arab state to the west, excuse me, the other way around, a Jewish state to the west of the Jordan River, an Arab state to the east of the Jordan River. The um, Arab states, all of the Arab states in the Middle East did not accept that, but the next day launched war on the new state of Israel. Now, there were Arab inhabitants of Israel at the time, as well as Jewish inhabitants of Israel. Um, the, uh, the Jewish new government of Israel wanted the Arab inhabitants to stay and actually drove around with loudspeaker trucks saying, please don't leave, you're, you're our friends, you're full citizens, and so forth. However, the Arab authorities uh, basically commanded the Arab inhabitants of Israel to leave, saying, if you stay there, you'll become the enemy, and we'll wipe you out when we wipe out the Jews. If you leave, when we're victorious in a week or two, you can return and take all of the territory from the Jews we've wiped out. So most of the Arab population left, or much of the Arab population left um, under that threat, or in any case, but they left voluntarily. The Arabs who stayed in Israel Israel, of course, won the war, much to everyone's surprise. The Arabs who stayed became full Israeli citizens. All of the rights, all of the privileges of every Jewish Israeli citizen. There are um, Muslim Arab Israelis who serve in parliament 
um, run, help run the government, have ministerial po- posts, and so forth. There was no discrimination in the state of Israel against the Arabs who stayed and the Jews who stayed. However, when Israel won the war, the Arabs who had fled, who were now behind the armistice line, um, they were not let back into Israel. They had chosen to essentially fight with the enemy, and they were not allowed to return to their homes in Israel. They were uh, kept in refugee camps for almost 20 years, but they weren't kept in refugee camps by the Israelis. They were in Jordan at the time. There was no reason why they couldn't be absorbed into the Arab populations of Jordan and Syria and Lebanon and Saudi Arabia and so forth. However, the Arab nations would not let them leave those refugee camps which the Arab nations had set up, not the Israelis, because as long as there was this presence of supposedly uh, dispossessed uh, Palestinians or uh, former residents of Israel who were Arab, then that would be a constant threat to the existence of Israel and a very powerful political tool that could be used. Anyway, I'm using up too much time myself So I will switch to the recording of the discussion between Michael Brown and um, and Robert Spencer outlining the truth behind this Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I will only, before I do so, I will simply throw in one last word, which is the reason the two-state solution didn't work in 1948 and um, didn't work since then is because... Uh, of the role of Islam in the equation because it is a command in the Quran in so many words that is absolutely forbidden. See, because the uh, Great Commission in Islam is to subdue the entire world to Islam, which means that whenever a territory in the world falls under Islamic rule, it is prohibited from ever allowing it to no longer be under Islamic rule. And that entire region under the Ottoman Empire was under Islamic rule. So it is uh, expressly forbidden in the Quran itself that any land which had once been ruled by Islam can ever not be ruled by Islam. And of course, that includes Israel. It's in, it's in uh, chapter 2, verse 191 of the Quran reads, quote, Kill them wherever you excuse me, kill them wherever you catch them and drive them out from where they drove you out because people who disagree or cause conflict is a more serious problem than killing. In other words, if you have people there who are not Muslim and who do not accept Islam, that is a more serious crime than killing them. So you must kill them where, wherever you catch them and drive them out from where they drove you out for the Arabic word is fitna is a more serious problem than killing. Anyway, with that, let's uh, go to the discussion that I promised to play for you. This is again, um, Dr. Michael Brown and Robert Spencer. What's the truth about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? My guest, Robert Spencer, is going to talk to us today about the Palestinian delusion. Is it true that today's Palestinians are originally descendants of the ancient Canaanites? Is it true that there has been a strong Arab presence through the history of the land of Israel? Is it true that 
Israelis, Jewish people stole the land from the Arabs. What is true? What is false? What can we know from historical documents? Why is there such a debate over something that is relatively recent in terms of the forming of the modern state of Israel? What is there that maybe we have not been told accurately? We're thrilled to have Robert with us today. Welcome back to the Line of Fire broadcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. So what motivated you to write this? It's, it's a bit broader historical focus. It looks specifically at the land of Israel. Why did you feel it was important to get this book out? Because of the barrage of disinformation and misinformation that's out there now. The whole Palestinian enterprise is probably the most successful propaganda campaign that we've ever seen in human history. And that's no exaggeration. There are people out there who are not only believing lies, but passionately acting upon them. And that includes a great many young Americans who've been taught a lot of falsehoods at colleges and universities in America today. So I thought I would do what I could to try to correct the record and to provide a source book for people who want the truth or want to tell others the truth. One of the uh, things that was the Palestinian people was invented for was in order to be able to manipulate that agenda. The Palestinian people, as I show in the book, is a propaganda invention that you never heard a thing about them before the 1960s because they didn't exist. They're the same ethnically, linguistically, culturally as the Arabs of Jordan, of Lebanon, of Syria. And even in 1948, when Israel was being founded and there was there was war, as a matter of fact, between Israel and the neighboring Arab states, and there was all sorts of talk about Israel and the Muslim Arabs of the area. Not a word was said about Palestinians. They didn't exist. But because of the commitment in general of the so-called progressive movement to the, the disadvantaged, to minorities, to people who are supposedly disenfranchised, the Palestinian people plays on the, the invention of the Palestinian people plays on those kinds of sentiments, because before they were existed, you had tiny Israel surrounded by 22 gargantuan Arab states. And people love the underdog, and people love the, the people who are fighting back against oppression and so on, and that was Israel. And so Israel enjoyed a great amount of support in the United States to erode that support. And again, it's been amazingly successful. This even tinier people was invented and is supposedly facing this massive Israeli war machine. And this is all complete fiction, but it plays into that idea that if you want to be on the side of the oppressed and the poor minorities, then you've got to support the Palestinians. And what about the refugee status that is granted to Palestinians today? Is that unique and different than refugee statuses with, with other allegedly displaced peoples? Yeah, it's unique in, in contrast to every last refugee in human history up until now. Uh, there used to be that if you were displaced from your home, you were a refugee. And it was a very simple thing, really. And then if you moved somewhere else and your children were not displaced from their new home, then they were not refugees. For example, I myself am the grandson of refugees 
from the Ottoman Empire. They were exiled from the Ottoman Empire for refusing to convert from Christianity to Islam. And that was my grandparents. They were refugees. But they came to America. My parents were born here. And I was born here. So my parents are not refugees, and I am not a refugee. However, if I were a Palestinian, then I would be a refugee. The United Nations recognizes for Palestinians and Palestinians only that refugee status is passed on from the people who actually left the area. And I show in the book that they were not exiled, they were not kicked out, they were not expelled or their land stolen, but they actually left voluntarily at the call of the Arab Higher Committee. And their children are refugees, their grandchildren are refugees, and so on. So you have millions of people in the world today who are legally considered by the United Nations Palestinian refugees and are recipients of aid on that basis, who never lived there, never lived anywhere close to there. And it's only that their grandparents or great-grandparents were from that area or supposedly from that area. I think that what you have is a strange phenomenon in Europe in particular, but also increasingly in the United States, of post-Christian leftists who are deeply anti-Semitic because they hate Israel, but also this is something that they have heard in their own families and picked up in their environment. And it coalesces with what the lies they're being taught about Israel, such that Israel is the particular focus of the United Nations for human rights abuses when it is very scrupulous in not committing those human rights abuses, and many, many other countries that actually commit real human rights abuses are ignored at the UN. There's no doubt that this, there's a deeply anti-Semitic component that comes from a variety of factors and is responsible for that. And what's, what's so interesting is when you really press it with an anti-Semite, their justification will be, well, the Jews are evil. It, 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 rather than denying it, they'll reinforce it and try to prove it. That's when it becomes more and more scary. All right, so let's let's go back in in history, and where would be a good starting point if if we want to catch up? Do we want to go back to the Ottoman Empire? Do we want to go back to days before that? Give us an overview of what the population of what was known as Palestine from the second century on what what the population looked like there in the land. Well, in the first place, Michael, it's important to emphasize that. The land was known as Palestine from the 2nd century on because the Romans renamed it that right. in the year 134 A.D. After the Bar Kokhba revolt among the Jews, Bar Kokhba was a false messiah who led the Jews on an armed revolt against the Romans. They lost and were exiled from the land. And Judea, the land of the Jews, was renamed uh, Palestine. Palestine, however, was not the name of the people. It was a name that had been plucked out of the Bible by the Romans, as it was the name of the ancient enemies of the Jews who no longer existed in the world, the Philistines. But for the Romans, it was just the name of the region, the name they gave the region. It was like uh, Brooklyn or Staten Island. It was always the name of an area, but never the name of a people or a nationality. And even though Jews were legally barred from living there after 134, many of them didn't comply, and the Roman decree was never fully enforced, such that there was a Jewish presence in that land uninterrupted from way before 134 AD up until today. And the same cannot be said of any other people. The Arabs didn't come in until the 7th century, and then the Turks later. 
And uh, by the end of the 19th century, the land is part of the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman Empire is weakening, such that when the Ottoman Empire fell at the end of World War One, you have Israel, the land that is now Israel, being ceded by the Ottoman Empire in its last days to the League of Nations. And the League of Nations, the precursor to the United Nations, then established, gave it, gave administration of the land to Britain specifically expressly for the establishment of a Jewish national home. And so the, it's kind of ironic that people say this is occupied land or stolen land. Ask them who's, who's it stolen from. And if they have any historical knowledge and any honesty, then there's no answer to that because the land wasn't actually stolen from anyone. There never was a Palestinian state. There never was a Palestinian nationality. Uh, the idea that Jews took Palestinian land is belied by the historical record. This land was is set aside by the governing authority to be a Jewish national home, which is what it became. So, Robert, how, how heavily populated was the land of Israel, then called Palestine, say in the... the the mid-1800s, say, around the time Mark Twain went there, other others going there. How, how did they describe the land? Well, I'll tell you, I've got quite a lot of information about this in the book. Mark Twain had some celebrated quotes that a lot of people are familiar with, I think, where he speaks about walking for miles and not seeing anybody and the land being desolate and forsaken. And uh, this was echoed by many, many other people missionaries and uh, people of all kinds, travelers who went there. Uh, it was not a thriving Muslim-Arab land. It was a place where very few people lived that was extremely poor and had very difficult circumstances because the land was not very fertile or easy to farm. It was only when the Zionist movement began that not only did the Jewish population pick up in the area, but also the Muslim Arab population, because the Muslim Arabs actually followed the Jews to the land in order to uh, gain the economic gain from the economic opportunities that they offered. And what's ironic is that uh, while the Arab Muslim population rose sharply in Palestine when the Jews started to arrive, and in connection with their arrival, then those people who were all from somewhere else turned around and claimed that they were the indigenous people of the area and that the Jews had stolen their land. All right, so what you're saying is there was a certain Arab population in the land, a certain Jewish population. Let's say the Arab population was higher than the Jewish population, but both small. Jewish, Jewish immigration begins to increase in the late 1800s. The land is now developed more. With that is now an increased Arab immigration because the land is being worked more and, and there's more or job opportunities for the Arab population. So the Arab population is still bigger than the Jewish population, but they're still fairly small compared to our, our numbers today. And and pretty much they are coexisting, right? W would that be a fair picture to say be before Hajimina Husseini in the 1920s that the Jewish and Arab populations were working together fairly well? Fairly well, uh, for the most part. There were some difficulties now and again, but yeah, um, certainly the it was widely understood then in a way that it's not now among the Arabs that the Jews had always been there. And there was even a, uh, a Jew, an Arab Muslim leader 
who at the beginning of the Zionist movement wrote a letter to Jewish leaders saying, look, yes, of course this is your land, but you really should not come back and settle in it uh, for various reasons that he uh, had of his own that are explained in the book. The uh, existence of both the Arabs and the Jews was taken for granted as long as the Jews maintained the dhimmi status, the status of second class under Islamic law that prevailed throughout the Ottoman Empire until the 1850s. The abolishment, the abolition of the dhimmi status in the 1850s by the Ottoman Empire under pressure from the British, as a matter of fact, the British and French. And that combined with the beginning of the Zionist movement a few decades after that uh, created the uh, resentment among the Muslim Arabs of the area because they believed that this was land that was ruled by Islam and under the law of Islam, any land that is ruled by Islamic law at one point belongs by right to Islam forever. And so they were deeply threatened by the uh, beginning of the Zionist movement. But this was something new. It wasn't that Jews had never been there and people were angry because they started to show up. Their Jews had always been there, but it's that they stopped accepting the idea that they had to live indefinitely under the hegemony of Islamic law. Got it. And then things heat up. What happens in Hebron? When, when does the violence start against the Jewish people? Well, one of the worst things that uh, mars this whole sorry history, and it is a sorry history, the history of the uh, Middle East peace process and the history of the uh, establishment of the State of Israel. It's just full of people behaving abominably. And one of them was Colonel Bertie Harry Waters Taylor, who was a British officer in Palestine in 1920. Now, the British had just gotten the, the, the made the Balfour Declaration in 1917, calling for a Jewish national home. And they were about to receive the mandate for Palestine that echoed that they had the responsibility to create a Jewish national home. But the British had also uh, allied with the Arabs against the Ottoman Empire during World War One, And there were many British, including T.E. Lawrence, the famous Lawrence of Arabia, who thought that the Arabs deserved a reward for helping the British against the Ottomans. And so they were against the idea of a Jewish national home. They wanted to give the area to the Arabs. So Bertie Harry Waters Taylor actually went to the Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajimin al-Husseini, and told him that if the Arab Muslims started to commit terror attacks in that area, then there would be influential British leaders and military officials as well who would turn against the Zionist project. And so in order to get them to abandon it, terrorism was the way to do it. That is something that a British official actually told to the Mufti, and obviously the Muslim Arabs of Palestine followed that advice and continue to follow it. So there was British advice behind that. Fascinating to, to hear that, that part of it, which is, is often not told. So then you, you have outright slaughter of, of Jews in Hebron. <clears throat> you have these violent uprisings. And then there's a peace proposal in, in the 1930s, which actually would have been better than the 1947 proposal. What happened to that, and how did the Arab leadership respond to that? Well, see, this is the beginning of the intransigence that we see uh, even to this day. 
that there had that there was the peace proposal that you mentioned in the 30s. There have been so many since then, right up to today with Trump's deal of the century and so on. And in every one of them, the Palestinian Arabs have to accept a presence of a Jewish community that will be essentially autonomous and not under their rule. And that's something that they will not accept and cannot accept because of the dictate in Islamic law that Islam must dominate and not be dominated. And they believe that because this land is uh, land that was once ruled by Islamic law in the Ottoman Empire and before that in the Arab Empire, that therefore it has to be ruled by Islamic law forever. And the Quran says in chapter 2, verse 191, drive them out from where they drove you out, which is a very, very significant statement. The uh, Arabs were not driven out of Israel, and I show that in many ways. Notably, in 1948, they were not driven out. They left because the Arab Higher Committee ordered them to do so. But nonetheless, it is part of the mythology that is uh, a construct of the whole Palestinian case here, which is all mythology. Part of the mythology is that uh, the Jews drove them out of their land, so they have a divine command. They have what is the equivalent for Jews and Christians of one of the Ten Commandments. They have a command from Allah to drive out those who supposedly drove them out. So they could not accept the peace agreement that was offered them in the 30s, or the partition that was offered them in the 40s, or any of the other peace agreements that have been negotiated since then, even when they were negotiated by Muslim Arab leaders. They were done so for the purpose of gaining concessions from Israel that would weaken it, not in order to establish the framework for genuine peaceful coexistence as equals on an indefinite basis. Uh, When you quote the Quran, is this something that is in the conscious mind of these Palestinian leaders or some of them more secular is, is it just kind of an undercurrent, or is this something that, that they feel is a divine mandate? It's all about Islam from beginning to end, Michael. Even when uh, in the 60s, the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict was part of the Cold War, and the Palestinians were allied with the Soviet Union, and there, were a lot of, there was a lot of communist rhetoric coming from Palestinian leaders. Even then, the backdrop of it was all Islam, and now it's much more explicit that uh, this is an Islamic imperative. If you read the statements of Palestinian leaders, and I have many of them in the book, you'll see that they consistently speak all about Islam, that their objection to Israel is based on Islam. And some have even said, even if Israel is destroyed, our hatred of the Jews will continue, which shows that their hatred of the Jews is based on Islamic Quranic anti-Semitism and not a dispute over uh, the land of Israel. Yeah, the, and so the, the land would just be conflict. yeah the land would just be the, the latest exacerbation of an older conflict. Why is it something that is relatively recent? We're talking about something within the last seventy five years, the the bulk of it. Why is it that there can be such different views on it, and that you even have well known Israeli scholars or Jewish scholars who would argue for a narrative very different than the narrative that you present? that is in a rational sense, because anybody can look at my book and see that everything is exhaustively documented and based on historical records that are available and can be examined. 
and I would challenge anyone to find any inaccuracy in the book. Uh, the left, of course, the international left, Jewish and non-Jewish, Israeli and non-Israeli, American and non-American, they all uh, hate Israel and have bought into the narrative that arose in the 60s of the Palestinian people. That narrative arose in the Soviet Union, and it was the creation of the KGB in collaboration with Yasser Arafat. And I think a great many of its elements have taken hold and are taken for granted without being sufficiently examined. Also, there is a Palestinian propaganda machine that is insufficiently appreciated that I devote a chapter of the book to that manufactures atrocities committed by Israel with a uh, cleverness and an attention to detail that uh, makes make, takes many people in and makes them think that the IDF is some monstrous force routinely trampling upon human rights. As a matter of fact, just a few days ago, I saw a photo being distributed on Twitter of a little baby, and he was supposedly badly burned by an Israeli airstrike in Gaza that was indiscriminately uh, harming civilians. And then on closer examination, it turned out that the photo itself came from Iraq in 2017 and had nothing whatsoever to do with Israel. And this kind of thing is routine. I discussed some instances of it in the book of photos of various atrocities being taken and misrepresented. And I think a lot of well-meaning liberal Jews and non-Jews, leftists of all kinds, they sometimes see these things and don't realize that they're not authentic. And they think that the humanitarian position is to oppose Israel, when actually what's, being, what's happening is, is that they are falling victim to very clever, no doubt, very skillful propaganda, but it's still just propaganda. Yes, yeah, so it may be well-intended, well-meaning, trying to stand for justice, trying to be compassionate, but based on misinformation. It, it's interesting that in the subtitle of your book, The Palestinian Delusion, you say the catastrophic history of the Middle East peace process. To me, there was a double meaning there because of the whole concept in the Muslim Arab world that this is al-Nakba, this is the catastrophe uh, what Jews would celebrate is the founding of the modern state of Israel is mourned in, in the Arab world as al-Nakba, the, the catastrophe. There's a book I, I read some years ago by Samuel Katz, I believe, and he said it's fascinating that when you look at the Arab press at that time, the Arab press is not reporting this catastrophe, this crisis. Uh, did you find that as you go further back in history, that even the sources that were sympathetic to, to the Muslim Arab position were not reporting this mass of driving out of refugees by the Jews? Have you been able to document that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, Samuel Katz has a great deal of information, and I have more on it in my own book, about how the Arab leaders actually told the Arabs to leave. The Arab Higher Committee, which was headed, incidentally, by the same Mufti of Jerusalem that we discussed earlier, Hajimin al-Husseini, uh, they told, they issued orders to the Muslim Arabs of Palestine to leave the area in 1948. Uh, this is attested in multiple sources, and many of them at Muslim Arab sources themselves, but not nowadays, only at the time, only in the late 40s and early 50s. 
was it widely reported that the Arab Higher Committee had told them to leave because the Arab states were going to go to war with Israel, the newly declared state of Israel. Yep. They were going to destroy it, and these people would be able to, they, they were thinking, they'd be able to come back to their homes in a matter of weeks. Um, and they wanted them out of the line of fire in the meantime. Of course, things did not work out the way they planned. They did not win the war, and so those people were not able to go back to their homes and they were considered to be uh, hostile to Israel for quite understandable reasons. Uh, but the idea that they were driven out, that they were exiled, that they were kicked out, there's just no historical basis for that. Yeah, and, and, and it's just Palestinian propaganda. Uh, Ephraim Karsh in his Palestine Betrayed book, as, as sources were released, original documents that were released after a period of years, as he began to dig into these many Arab documents, uh, he found consistently the same thing, uh, even even leaflets that were being passed out by the Israelis, saying by the Jews that were about to become Israelis, saying, hey, there's room here for both of us and, and stay. It's going to be safe. We want you as our neighbors and, and things like that. There was a concerted effort to get that message out. And then others saying, hey, the canon can't distinguish between a Jew and, and, and an Arab. So get out. We'll destroy the Jews. And then you can come back to your, to your lands. In, in the midst of all this, though, Robert, were there any excesses, in your view, committed by the Israelis, or if you go back before the foundation of the state, the Irgun or the Stern Gang, were there any uh, efforts by the Jews then that would be considered terroristic or, or wrong? Would you say that, that the Jewish population was always behaving in a totally ethical way and the only ethical violations were on the other side or that there were violations on both sides uh, in the midst of a war for independence? Well, it's certainly widely believed that there were violations on both sides, and many people of goodwill will say that, for example, this, the, the blowing up of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem was an example of the uh, Ergun and the Stern gang committing atrocities of their own. Uh, however, even there, the, the Israelis were scrupulously ethical and careful. Uh, I mean, I'm not approving of the blowing up of the hotel, but it was the headquarters of the British in the area, and the Israelis wanted to establish a state, and the Irgun and the Stern Gang were fighting against the British presence in the area, as well as the Muslim Arabs who were committing acts of terrorism. And they warned the British that if they didn't leave the hotel, the hotel would be bombed, and it would be bombed at this particular time. Yep. And that people should get out of the hotel because it was going to be bombed. And the British paid no attention to this. And so you got to wonder, well, was it, whose responsibility is that when they were uh, doubly and triply warned? It's the same kind of thing we see happening nowadays in Gaza, when Israel is the only military on earth that actually warns the population before dropping bombs. And yes, bombs are dropped in civilian areas. And a lot of people say, see, they drop bombs in civilian areas. Well, this is a necessity because Hamas and Islamic Jihad mount attacks from civilian areas. They base their operations in civilian areas so that they can draw retaliatory fire that they can use for propaganda purposes. And Israel tries to counter that by destroying the Hamas and Islamic Jihad installations, dropping leaflets the day before or uh, knocking on the roof, it's called, dropping non-incendiary devices onto the roofs of buildings that house Hamas operations, and warning the people to get out. 
so that then when the installation, the Hamas operation is destroyed, nobody is there or nobody needs to be there. And we see here again that these, these things are manipulated anyway. And you have patently, obviously fake photos of, of uh, buildings that have been destroyed. And then in the middle of all this dust and rubble and disarray, you have a, a, a little pink teddy bear or something thrown on top. And it's untouched, and there's no dust on it, which ought to tip you off that it wasn't really there and there weren't any kids there, but it's all just propaganda. It's used for those purposes. Israel is the most scrupulous army in the world in avoiding civilian casualties. But from your view, is it really that one-sided? I mean, I know you're meticulous in your research. You know how to get both sides of a story. You're presenting one side. Is it really that one-sided? Well, I can tell you another thing, Michael. Of course, no entity in this world is perfect. Mm -hmm. And certainly there have been Israelis who have mistreated Palestinian Muslim Arabs. And then what happens to them? Invariably, they go on trial. And if they're found guilty, then they are sentenced to prison. Whereas the Palestinians, when they commit atrocities against Israelis, they're celebrated as heroes and Kanti is passed out on the streets of Gaza. That's the key difference here. Uh, it's not that the, the Israeli army has never done anything wrong. That would be a silly thing to say. But when they do, this is not something that is ordered from higher ups, and it is not something that goes unpunished. The same cannot be said of the other side. Yes, so, so one side tragically is dancing in the streets, celebrating the slaughter of Israelis. The other side in Israel is protesting and saying, we need to bring these people, our own people, to justice. So... Who are these millions and millions of Palestinians? We know they exist in Gaza and the so-called West Bank and other nations. Who are they? We'll be right back talking about the Palestinian delusion with Robert Spencer. So, Robert, we know that there are millions of people today who identify as Palestinians. We know that the population within Israel proper of, of Arabs who remained in the land, maybe went from about 200,000 to roughly one and a half million. We know the roughly 600,000 or so that were displaced are now multiplied millions, some in Gaza, some in what's called the West Bank, so Judea, Samaria, some in, taken into other countries, still living as refugees, amazingly, in these Muslim countries. But who are these people? That's one. And I want to make sure we get to the second question because it's the last question of the book. Where do we go from here? So first, who are these people? And then where do we go from here? Well, Michael, you know, I was talking to a Palestinian a few years ago, and it was a very interesting conversation because he was explaining to me about how he was indeed Palestinian, that he was a tremendous foe of Israel and so on. And then along in the course of the conversation, which was very cordial, he started to tell me about how he was Armenian, and his grandparents had come from Armenia to the, uh, to the land of Palestine in the early 20th century in order to take advantage of the economic opportunities there. And so I think his experience and his family's experience in a microcosm is the answer to who are these people. They're mostly from somewhere else. And their surnames often betray that, because uh, Muslim Arabs often have surnames that denote where they're from. And you have a great many Palestinians whose names show that they ain't from there. They're from elsewhere. 
you also have the uh, <clears throat> fact that the Arabs of the area are pretty much the same as the Arabs of Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. As a matter of fact, there's no difference in terms of religion, in terms of language or culture, ethnicity. They're Arabs, and they're pretty much the same as the Arabs from all over the region, which is why, <clears throat> excuse me, they were so much. They were. It was not a difficult thing for them to pick up and move to a place where the people who were where the Arabs were pretty much like the Arabs where they had left. It wasn't a huge displacement like moving from. Europe uh, or the Middle East to the United States would be. Well, I, this is Roy Shoman again cutting in. That's all the time we have for today for playing that recording. I'm sorry I had to cut it off a little bit. Let me just kind of close the show. Let me point out that um, maybe it doesn't make a difference, but Robert Spencer certainly is not Jewish. He's not speaking out of some kind of uh, ethnic loyalty or preconceptions or something. He is, as I said, a, um, uh, of Armenian extraction, um, American, um, has been a Catholic deacon most of his adult life. Uh, I believe he has at least 10 children, by the way. Um, and uh, Michael Brown, I do not actually know. I know he's a Messianic Jewish rabbi. I don't know if he started out being Jewish. He might easily have. But in any case, Spencer's position is not based on polemics. It's based on research. The book that he was referring to, which I do recommend strongly, is The Palestinian Delusion. Um, it's heavily footnoted with primary sources. Um, a lot of those sources originally appeared in another book I strongly recommend by Joan Peters called um, From Time Immemorial. And if you're interested in looking into this history, there is a very good website. Uh, Robert Spencer mentioned his name. The um, rabbi who runs the website is named Samuel Katz, K-A-T-Z. And the website is... Um, Eretz Yitzroel, which is a little bit hard to spell, I must admit. It's E-R-E-T-Z-Y-O-E-S-R-O-E-L, or I may have that a little bit wrong, so it's probably safer just to look for um, Samuel Katz. And anyway, that's pretty much the end of the time. I hope this has been interesting. I'm not exactly sure why I was inspired to do the show this way, but I felt like I ought to address this. I got a very distressed email from a close friend of mine in London earlier this week, a wonderful Polish woman, not Jewish, a Pol Polish woman who moved to London, who was very distressed because of the preaching she had in her church, um, in her Catholic church, about the terrible abuse of the poor, innocent Palestinians by the evil Israeli occupying forces. And I kind of figured if, um, the Catholic, if within the Catholic Church this political situation is going to be introduced, then the truth of the situation also has to be introduced and not just a one-sided, uh, frankly distorted polemic for uh, political end. Not that I'm accusing the woman who spoke in this church of that, but the forces behind her. And finally, I hope that the effrontery of the myth, so to speak, that we've all been subjected to is in itself evidence of the spiritual warfare which is behind all of this. 
because as I started the show saying, I'm going to close the show saying, it's all about salvation. It's all about salvation history. Everything is all about salvation history. But certainly, whenever you see anything having to do with the Jews or the Catholic Church, it's about salvation history. And um, perhaps even more so about the Jews because they have this very peculiar role in uh, salvation history from the beginning all the way up through the second coming. So anyway, with that, this is Roy Shulman. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. And it's time to say goodbye for now. I hope you join us again next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now. Thank you.